can't deceive him. on being an island unto oneself. On being an island unto oneself in a very wide and vast way. And in this talk this evening, I want to make use of a novel by the English writer or the Huxley, a book called Island, which he wrote about a year before his death in 1952. And in this book, looks at the group of people from the island of Pala. The group of people who have looked at life from many different sides and, and angles and in doing so have used intelligently and wisely their reasoning faculty of the mind and co-joined it with understanding and compassion. And this book, this novel, tells of a journalist who goes traveling to the far east and while there, he finds himself shipwrecked on this island. And the story is an account of his stay on the island and the meetings and conversations which took place with these people. And one finds oneself on, on reading this book. What sound playing down to earth common sense these parlies, these people are speaking. And so in the talk this evening I just want to make reference to three or four passages just to uh, read them to you and also to give uh, a little commentary. And he's having he's having a conversation with some of the islanders and the islanders just uh, tell him a little bit about the background, the historical background to their to their thoughts. 
and hope. Buddhism came to Pala about 1200 years ago. And it came not from Ceylon, which is what one would have expected, but from Bengal. And through Bengal, later on, from Tibet. The result, the Mahayani. And our Buddhism, it shot through and through with Panther. Do you know what Panther is? Well, that's the Barnaby, the journalist, the young man. Will had to admit that he had only the haziest notion. And to tell you the truth, said Ranga, with a laugh that broke irrepressibly through that through the crust of his pedantry, I don't really know much more than you do. Tantra is an, an enormous subject, and most of it, I guess, is just silliness and superstition, not worth bothering about. But there's a hard core of sense. If you're a tantric, you don't renounce the world or deny its value. You don't try to escape into a nirvana apart from life as the monks of the southern school do. No, you accept the world and you make use of it. You make use of everything you do, of everything that happens to you, of all the things you see and hear and taste and touch, as so many means to your liberation from the prison of yourself. This, quite rightly and correctly, in terms of Tantra, it is to make full use, as we have said a number of times in each talk, of rules that appear, to come out of the prison which self binds us to. And in terms of our, our own situation, and in terms of our experiences, we find this being bound to things. And it's such that the mind produces and makes its own prison. In India, it is not uncommon to find someone, and, and also, of course, with other people in other places, who is strongly desirous of being in another country. They want to get out of the country where they are living, and they want to be in the West. They want to be in America, they want to be in Germany, in Australia, somewhere. And they're completely dissatisfied. They have the ability, of course, to move the whole length and breadth of the country. And if you go, say, in India, from the north of the, where the Himalayas are, right down to Cape Pomeroon, right down to the south, and then right from um, Bombay on the west side, right to uh, the eastern side, Odessa. You have thousands of square miles, 2,000 miles by 1,000 miles. A person is free to move and to travel in. But the mind is dissatisfied. It wants to be in another country, 
คือความจะที่ดีแต่ one thousand miles by one thousand miles is the prison. Passing through to be included, yet a tremendous state. A prison created by a desire which is unable to be fulfilled, and so the person finds himself. Or regards himself as being trapped in the situation in which they are in. And when that happens, we will again and again regard, "I must alter the alpha, and my prison will go." Maybe temporarily, but of course, it isn't easy. Grows up again, brings up again some other situation or. Some other place or some other time. And when we speak of of prison, no one likes to be in prison. No one wants to be in any sort of bondage or trap. And it's a common enough, not only with human beings wanting to be free, but in fact with all the animal kingdom too. You find a poor animal, some somebody brutal people, really quite insensitive people, who lay down a trap for some animal, some innocent animal, and the animal is out at the night time, and the, he steps on the trap, and the trap grabs him, grabs his leg, which he speedily holds in that trap. An animal will even bite right through his leg to break free of the trap, to get away from the trap. Beings in general hate to be in any sort of bondage, to be tied in any way. But the being tied is not in terms of the physical, but it's in terms of the mind. One tiny phrase that that beautifully and so beautifully, I look out of my window and I see the whole world. So it's not a person's life situation or a person circumstances that prevent knowing what freedom is, but it is something which goes on inside oneself. And in terms of being an island unto oneself, it is nothing connected with some neurotic need for independence from being separate from other people. Being an island unto oneself is the moment. If one knows oneself, one is on a very firm, sound, safe island. Now, in this uh, book, he encounters, or he goes through particular、um, experiences with Will Farnaby, and in different times, in different situations, the people on the island shows him what a misshapen way of thinking is there inside the man. 
just an ordinary simple thing, because of our conditioning, we act foolishly. And even sometimes when loving kindness or friendliness is misdirected, it affects the mind and it produces a bondage in the mind. Friendliness or love misdirected produces harm. Will means a young girl. This is a young girl, I think about 10 years old. My name, Mary Sarojina Macphail. Macphail, it is still implausible. Macphail, she assured him. And your little brother is called Tom Krishna. He nodded. Well, I'm Dan. Did you come to Parla by the aeroplane? I came out of the sea. Out of the sea? Do you have a boat? I did have one. With his mind's eye, Will saw the waves breaking over the stranded hulk. Heard with his inner ear the crash of their, in their impact. Under her questioning, he told us what had happened. The storm, the beaching of the boat, the long nightmare of the climb, the snake, the horror of falling. He began to tremble again more violently than ever. Mary Sarojina listened attentively and without comment. Then, as his voice faltered and finally broke, she stepped forward, and the bird, still perched on her shoulder, kneeled down beside him. You know, in the island of this island, the birds fly around. There are now boys, there are now boys, there are now boys. Oh, attention, attention, attention. <laughs> And the one stays there, will, will say, attention, attention for what? And he says, attention for attention. And so the birds flying around the island, there are now boys, there are now boys. <laughs> so, Mary Sarajuna listened attentively and without comment. Then, as his voice faltered and finally broke, she stepped forward. Listen, Will, she said, laying a hand on his forehead. We've got to get rid of this. You know, he's very upset. He's Shaved him, he's frightened by this experience of crashing on the rocks and then coming face to face with it. No. I wish I knew how, he said between chattering and teeth. How should he teach it? But in the usual way, of course. Tell me again about those snakes and how you fell down. He shook his head. I don't want to. Of course you don't want to, she said. But you've got to. Listen to what the miner is saying. Here and now, boys. The bird was still exhausting. Here and now, boys. You can't do here and now, she went, up, she went on, until you've got rid of those snakes. Tell me. I don't want to, I don't want to. She was almost in tears. Then you'll never get rid of them. They'll be crawling inside your head forever and serve you right. Mary Sarajira added severely. He tried to control the trembling, but his body had ceased to belong to him. Someone else is in charge. Someone malevolently determined to humiliate him, to make him suffer. Remember what happened when you were a little boy, Mary Sarajini was saying. What did your mother do when you hurt yourself? She had taken him in her arms, had said, my poor baby, my poor little baby. She did that. <laughs> the child spoke in a tone of shocked amazement. But that's awful. 
That's the way to have it in. My poor baby, she repeated delightedly. It must have gone on hurting for hours, and you never forget it. Will Farnaby made no comment, but lay there in silence, shaken by irrepressible shuddering. Well, if you won't do it yourself, I'll have to do it for you. Listen, Will, there was a snake, a big green snake, and you almost stepped on him. You almost stepped on him, and it gave you such a fright that you lost your balance. You fell. Now say it yourself. Say it. I almost stepped on him, he whispered obediently, and then I couldn't say. Then I fell. He brought out at last, almost inaudibly. All the horror of it came back to him, the nausea of fear, the panic start that had made him lose his balance, and then worse, fear, and the ghastly uncertainty that it was the end. Say it again. I almost stepped on him, and then he heard himself whimpering. That's right, Will. Cry, cry. The whimpering became a moaning. The shame, he clenched his teeth, and the moaning stopped. No, don't do that, she cried. Let it come out if it wants to. Remember that snake, Will. Remember how you felt. The moaning broke out again, and he began to shudder more violently than ever. Now tell me what happened. I could see its eyes. I could see its tongue going in and out. Yes, you could see his tongue. And what happened then? I lost my balance. I fell. Say it again. Yes, you are sobbing now. Say it again, she insisted. I fell. Again. It was hurting him to pieces, but he said it. I fell. Again. Yes. He was impossible. Again. I fell. I fell. I fell. Gradually the sobbing died down. The words came more easily and the memories they aroused were less painful. I fell to be treated for the hundredth time. But you didn't fall very far, Larry Saragini now said. No, I didn't fall very far, he agreed. So what's all the fuss about? <laughs> there was no malice or, ar- or irony in her tone, not the slightest implication of blame. She was just asking a simple, straightforward question that called for a simple, straightforward answer. Yes, what was all the fuss about? The snake hadn't bitten him, he hadn't broken his neck, and anyhow, it had all happened yesterday. Today there were those butterflies, the birds that called one to attention, the strange child who was talking to one like a duck uncle, looked like an angel and out of some unfamiliar mythology and within five degrees of the equator was called, believe it or not, Messiah. Will Farnaby laughed aloud. The little girl clapped her hands and laughed too. A moment later, the bird on her shoulder joined in with a peal upon peal of loud demonic, demonic laughter that filled the globe and echoed among the trees, so that the whole universe seemed to be fairly sticking its side over the enormous gesture. It's just a very good and very, very practical sort of uh, illustration in life where we try to bob off or try to give somebody a panacea somewhere or other about, oh, never mind, uh, it doesn't matter, or forget it, or it's only temporary, or it's unnecessary, impermanent and so on and so forth. But obviously it is not the way. And it's just really quite beautifully illustrated 
one must see the truth of things for oneself. And so in this particular, um, particular example that uh, is very well illustrated. And I think in, uh, it is something which uh, is well worth bearing in mind, not only with regard to the relationship with oneself and how one treats oneself, but also in terms of that contact and communication where one sees some other in difficulties. And nothing is ever lost by, in terms of actually being straightforward with the person. If I may, uh, may say that uh, just on reading this particular, particular story, uh, it just brings to mind that uh, particular situation with ourselves some time, some years ago, when I was in southern Thailand, living on this uh, island, I spent a few months in, living on the top of a hill, quietly, by myself doing it, doing practice there, and uh, living high up on the hill, one had a rather beautiful view of the, of the bay, and one could see these other small islands, 30 or 40 of them, and uh, this time, one period observed it, was sitting in the evening time doing the main meditation. It was just, just getting dark and uh, just outside was like a large, a large cave or stone and just had a small, uh, um, as you say, room built inside it. And we're just sitting outside the front door and there was a, there was a lake and then looking down across the valley and across the town to and so just one evening, just sitting there, quietly meditating, and part of I knew nobody around for miles, and just sitting there, and then I had and down, moving down those rocks was rather lengthy cobra moving down just a few feet in front of me. Uh, it was just, uh, <laughs> <laughs> one doesn't hang around. <laughs> 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 the thing that you can see is to go. <laughs> and so I left, <laughs> left me with the rock and <laughs> made my way elsewhere. But of course, in the time and the, in the, in the, the night hours, you know, the time, maybe not the, oh, the body organism reacts that the, uh, defensiveness comes into the, into the body. And of course, you go and you don't know where the damn thing is. And you've all you've got is a, just a, a little tin, tiny tin lamp, you obviously know that you're seeing the lip and wondering where this cobra happens to be hanging out. And you know, and so then the night goes by, the, the day comes. And you know that that, that that evening, one has got to be right where one was. No use to say, I'd, I'd stay at the back end of the day and stay up down there the room up and just One has got to be in the situation where the, pub, where the mind has, has moved about a bit and it's resulted in, some, in moving away. And, uh, and it's right, really right there, right in that very point and place 
but you really can see where the mind is. And uh, in the term of, um, go to the, of the sitting, one to sit and sit. And of course, uh, there's, you know, it turns around, you can say your state of attention is about 135%. (laughs) (laughs) And you just sit and you just, and anything, just a slight ripple, and you can pick it up. A little movement in the grass and pick it up. Because of that. To uh, outer situation. And then you see what the fear is. And how the work and the fear arises, but it's a, a fear which really is just something just completely born of the mind, connected with something which is known, or connected with something which is unknown, and the fear itself so easily takes a hold of the mind. Because it's such a strong uh, and very basic human emotion. Now, in terms of in terms of that, there is one type of fear which is a biological fear or a physical fear. The body is threatened by something, and then there's and one naturally reacts. No thinking processes, no ideas, or anything, or tendencies in that respect are really involved. It's just a immediate freezing. And that moment just lasts for a short time. Certainly it may shake one up. But after that initial moment of physical fear that comes, the mental fears come and latch on to that first initial physical fear. And one that won't fear is such a, a strong thing and such a uh, painful experience that of course the fear can really hold tight and then the fear uh, really upsets the whole nervous system, the mind and the body. So in terms of um, one watchfulness in this regard, one needs to just be aware, okay, there is a physical fear, it will come. Absolutely, to anyone in any situation. But then to be very watchful, especially watchful of the mental fear which just ties to it. But the, in this regard, the more stillness one has, the more that one is anchored, the more, in, in this respect, in terms of uh, danger and time of difficulty, one is an island and to oneself. And uh, in this regard, especially say with regard to pictures or with regard to uh, with regard to situations, the more that one has developed in terms of relaxation, stability, and uh, calmness, the less violent the reaction inside is to these um, stimulations or this incoming data, which really can shock the mind as well. And uh, again, just uh, continuing with this, uh, with this uh, story in terms of what uh, freedom is and what understanding of freedom is, it is really knowing the art or knowing deeply inside oneself 
What it means to be able to allow a stimulation from the answer to come and to be attentive to that reaction. There is a stimulation and in different ways stimulations come. And there are many things that um, uh, attract one towards something or repulse one. And that attraction and that repulsion is the reaction to a stimulus. That stimulus and that reaction is in Dharma the bondage. That is the very uh, prison that one finds oneself in. And that, that prison that one uh, is in is because of a mistaken error of the mind of uh, what is often cultiv- cultivated of I am free to do what I like. And a person in our, in our culture, a person uh, thinks of being free as being free to do this and being free to do that. But actually, Dharma, in terms of Dharma, or in terms of self-knowledge, one is not free. But is not freedom because all it is is a reaction because of a tendency to a situation. And in that, there actually, there is no freedom. One might, one might take a little bit further to do. Free is to be able, one might say this, not only to do what one likes, but to be free to do what one doesn't like. If one is going to speak in terms of like and dislike, or in terms of attraction and repulsion. To be free to do what one likes, and to be free to do what one doesn't. Then one might know a little bit of what freedom is all about. And that very freedom to do what one likes and to do what one doesn't like, which is need actually to stand out of life and dislike, is to be an island unto oneself. To be an island unto oneself. It requires, of course, yes, what freedom detachment, a dispassion to this constant interaction of stimulation-reaction, stimulation-reaction. And one is tied, tied to that, never tied to that. Neither. Sorry, you know, Of the businessman 
I know I'm not going to get out of this posture. So I wonder if they can get the car up here. So all the, the mind starts building up the anxiety because there's just a little bit things is different from the norm. All this grabbing hold of a norm and then a little this is stimulus and all the reaction comes in. Because one has set oneself some kind of yardstick about how one speaks. Though one is going to abide in permanent health for eons and eons and eons. So in any of this uh, any of this area, say with bodily without the bodily health, it's not that one neglects one health then health or uh, has a indifferent, uh, lackadaisical attitude with regard to it. No, there is responsibility. But, when these things are there, leaving the stimulus as the stimulus, just as it is. And, if there is some sort of reaction, very much aware of that. And that itself is the best way towards having true physical health and true mental health. True physical health and true mental health. The body itself, if one doesn't get mentally so much involved with it, quite able, quite efficient, by and large, can well look after itself. Tremendous amount of bodily fears is produced by the forces of the mind which are preoccupied with the condition of the body. And that more than anything burns up the, the nutrition, the elements of the body, the proteins, the, the vitamin life of the body and so forth. Mind plays an enormously major part in it. Now, the group of American doctors came to Shiva Puram last year while I was working at the Central Hospital. This is uh, one little nurse. What were they doing there? They wanted to find out why we had such a low rate of neurosis and cardiovascular problems. Those doctors, she shook her head. I tell you, Mr. Farnaby, they really made my hair stand on end made everybody's hair stand on end in the whole hospital. So you think our medicine's pretty primitive? That's the wrong word, that's the That's the wrong word. It isn't primitive. It's 50% terrific and 50% non-existent. Marvellous antibiotics. I can tell you a few stories about antibiotics. Marvellous antibiotics with absolutely no method for increasing resistance so that antibiotics won't be necessary. Fantastic operation, but when it comes to teaching people the way of going through life without having to be chopped up, absolutely nothing. And it's the same all along the line. Alpha plus for patching you up when you when you're starting to fall apart, but delta minus for keeping you healthy. Apart from food systems and synthetic vitamins, you don't seem to do anything at all about prevention. And yet you've got a proverb, prevention is better than cure. But cure, said Will, is so much more dramatic than prevention. 
And for the doctors, it's also a lot more profitable. Maybe for your doctors, said the little nurse, not for ours. Ours get paid for keeping people well. How is it done? We've been asking that question for a hundred years, and we found a lot of answers. Chemical answers, psychological answers, um, answers in terms of what you eat, how you make love, what you see and hear, how you feel about being who you are in this kind of thing. How you feel about being who you are in this kind of way. And which are the best answers? None of them is best without the others. So there's no panacea? How can there be? And she quoted the little rhyme that every student nurse had to learn by heart on the first day of her training. I am a crowd. And a crowd obeying as many laws as it has members. Chemically impure are all my beings. There's no single cure for what can never have a single cause. There's no single cure for what can never have a single cause. In other words, it takes a whole variety of different factors and conditions to produce this one condition which is in the present moment. And it includes, of course, the psychological condition as well as the physical condition. But the whole emphasis is so much to one side. And even the psychological condition is often treated in physical terms. So what do they do? They pump people up with pills. Pills become, become the, the answer to everything important for transmission. So whether it's prevention or whether it's cure, we attack on all the fronts at once. All the fronts she insisted, from diet to auto-suggestion, from negative on to meditation. Very simple. And again, if one just takes hold of the proverb, prevention is better than cure. And in terms of one's own daily life and daily life situation, sometimes if one is very attentive to what one is doing, one can see that which is called the future and so. It is not only that one gains and gets deeper insight into the present, not only with regard to all that has gone by into a very, very distant past, past long before this moment came, but also with regard to the future. And it's not necessary if one is a person of structure to write that history. And then we have some perceptive abilities to go to the astrologer, palm, palmistry, clairvoyance, or whatever. All, all of that is, is, may contain an element of helpfulness, may well be quite useful, but it will never be so accurate as the self-knowledge which one has. 
keep on going by inside by watching. And you know how it is that there's someone who is a palmist or an astrologer, and many people are sitting around on the floor, and this person takes hold of somebody's hand and says, Oh, oh, well, looks like to me, um, oh. Then the person, the pilot, then he goes, oh, oh. And the other person's hand starts going, oh, oh. <laughs> what, what do you see? What do you see? What do you see then? I think, I think you're going to go to a hospital. Now. Sunday morning. <laughs> And the person's there sitting, sitting there, and their hands stretched out. They can't wait. They what? They can't wait to know and find out about themselves. And everybody else is sitting around, their, their hands are itching. <laughs> Tell me what you see with this one. I'm told my line is very interesting. Everybody's got an interesting palm. It's the old palm of the old authority. Oh, very interesting date of birth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and everybody said, oh, yeah, well, I was born at midnight, you know. Any time, anything. People love, love, love to know about themselves. Everybody wants to know about themselves. They love it. They long in it. <laughs> And so the course people, the astrology and the palmist and the clairvoyance and other people in that field are doing a roaring place. And some of them are very useful and some of them are very uh, questionable. But the, the real true way of self-knowledge is by oneself. It's not to receive yourself. And this is how taking the other. And not only is it say with regard to gaining one's insight and understanding of your present, but one can see with regard to how the future unfolds itself. Yet, always one must take into consideration what is the uncertainty principle or the unknown factor. Because of the world of change and activity and so forth, one can never absolutely say, this will happen. In terms of where there is change, there is no absolute. Absolute is only in one place, and that is the unchanging thing. And so it's quite easy and quite common for uh, people in this field of seeing into others' lives or into their own, may not take into account this unknown factor, uncertainty principle, when can simply cannot be actually shown. And really in terms of seeing an island to oneself, it is by a thoroughgoing self-knowledge. If one has a, a greater degree of that, which comes, 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 one really knows what it means to walk on one's own feet. One really knows what it means to sit and to be with oneself. And the very ground which we call the island is the common ground. It is not an island which is sacred or 
individualistic or um, apart from everything else and one has, as it were, has withdrawn oneself into some little cocoon for safety. It is not that. The very island which is freedom, which is the very ground of experience, the ground of being, is an island which all beings are of. It's an island which all beings are of. The only difference between ordinary people and others who are on the island is that some know they are on that island and the great majority do not. Now, speaking again with regard to the past and the people of have a little book. And the book is called Notes on What What. Notes on What What. Will hold up the notes on What What. That's many this is book is the history of the reform that took place on the island. Dr. Roberts shook his head. It merely states the underlying principles. Read about those first. When I get back from Shiva Puran this evening, I'll give you a taste of the history. You'll have a better understanding of what was actually done. If you start by knowing what had to be done, what always and everywhere has to be done by anyone who has a clear idea about what what. And you see that again, What always and everywhere has to be done by anyone who has a clear idea about what what. So read it, read it. And don't forget to drink your fruit juice at 11. Will watch him go, then open the little green book and start it to read. Nobody needs to go anywhere else. We are all, if we only knew it, already there. If only I knew who in fact I am, I should cease to behave as what I think I am. And if I stop behaving, as what I think I am, I should know What in fact I am is only the manatee, and I look at that in the dictionary, an adherent of a religious system which sees Satan as co-eternal to God. What in fact I am is only the manatee I think I am would allow me to know it. Not to the contrast of couldn't It is the reconciliation of yes and no lived out in total acceptance and the blessed experience of the non year Or yes or not two. In other words, in the mission that lies as it is, one learns first and discovers what it means to live without saying yes nor no. 
ordinary everyday conventional. But in terms of clarity and seeing, neither saying yes nor no. In religion, all words are dirty words. Anybody who gets eloquent about Buddha or God or Christ ought to have his mouth washed out with carbolic soap. Because his aspiration to perpetuate only the yes in every pair of opposites can never, in the nature of things, be realized. He died, he wants things, he wants things, he means he keeps saying yes to things. And, and to never, never be realized all those things that he keeps saying yes to, yes to, yes So, this insulated manatee, I think I am, condemns himself to endlessly repeated frustration. Endlessly repeated conflict with other aspiring and frustrated humanities. Conflict and frustration, the theme of all history and almost all biography. I show you, after words and text, I show you sorrow, said the Buddha realistically, but he also shows the ending of sorrow. Self-knowledge, total acceptance, the blessed experience, in my language I say the blessed feeling, the blessed experience of the not true, the non-dual. And the dual, as we have been seeing, is being tied to this stimulus and reaction. Discussing what it means to stand out of that field and to know the true nature in standing out. Today, we can send the jewel to know the non jewel, which is blessed nature. And that is the island. And that island pervades everywhere. All being stand on that, stuck, abide in that, are submerged in that, are held in that, but deep with blindness, deep with suffering, deep with error, grasp 